You may be seated. If you have your Bibles, why don't you turn to Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7 is where we're going to be studying from today. I'll be preaching the gospel of the Lord Jesus from Mark 7. We're going to start at verse 14. So let's uh, read Mark chapter 7, and we're going to begin at verse 14. All right, this is the word of the Lord. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There's nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled. Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. This is the word of the Lord. Would you join with me in prayer? Oh, Father in heaven, we thank you for once again gathering us. And for each part of the service, Lord, we thank you for insisting that we sing together that we sing songs of rejoicing, that we can rejoice with those who are rejoicing, and then also that you command us to sing songs of grieving and mourning so that we can give the gift of mourning together with our brothers and sisters who are mourning. We also thank you for the preaching of the gospel, for how you insist that this happens, that we sit and listen as news is proclaimed over us, from a herald. And Lord, I pray that I would do that, that I would be faithful to herald news of what someone else has done for us. Give us ears to hear. I pray that you would do this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. One of the questions that is a pretty perennial question, something that you have maybe felt in your own heart, is how do you stop the flow of sin? It's one thing to recognize sin when you're doing it and then, and then and realize it and, and apologize to the Lord for doing it and commit to not doing it and then repeat over and over. It's kind of like a leaky faucet. How do you stop that flow? This is one of the questions that Jesus is actually dealing with in this passage. Now, I find it quite encouraging that Jesus recognized that this is a very hard to understand uh, teaching. This idea about where does sin come from and how can it be stopped? How can it be cut off at the source? He realizes that this is a hard teaching. Notice this with me in verse 14. Jesus says, he called the people to him again and he said, hear me, all of you. Okay, he says, hear me. And then he says, and understand. So he's saying, you're going to have to pay attention to this. Not only that, after he says this teaching, this little parable he enters the house with his disciples. So he's just with his disciples, just with those who he's personally teaching, these 12 disciples. And then his disciples ask him about the parable. They have no idea what he was talking about. So after he says, everybody listen to me and pay attention, and the disciples are nodding along. After where they're alone, he's like, the disciples are like, can you please tell us what you were talking about? And he says, then are you also without understanding? But he doesn't just leave it there. He gives them a private lesson. This is what we need. So we realize that this is something that, that is hard to remember. It's hard to understand. It's also hard to remember. We're going to need this reminder over and over again. We're going to have to learn this lesson over and over again. Because we are hard of hearing in that way. And we have a very short-term memory. And isn't it wonderful that the Lord Jesus is very eager to give private lessons to remind us each time we need this, this teaching, he is eager to give us this teaching. 
And so that is what he does. Because the Lord Jesus takes responsibility for his easily straying sheep. He knows that we are prone to wander. He knows that we are prone to wander. He absolutely knows it. And rather than just saying, you're prone to wander, each time he comes and gives us that lesson again. He goes and chases his easily straying sheep. Those sheep the Father gave to him. If you're a Christian, the Father gave you to Jesus. And you are now Jesus' responsibility. And he takes good responsibility for you. And this is one of the ways he does it, by teaching this lesson over and over again. There are kids here. I'm very happy that there are kids here. This is where kids should be, in church. And you're going to hear things that you will probably not understand. You're not going to remember every single thing. You're not going to understand every single thing. But you can remember the main point. You can remember the most important things. And as you get older, you'll, you'll understand more and more and more things from sermons. But here's one thing that you can definitely remember. That things around you do not make you sin. So when you're disobeying God, it wasn't your brother's fault. Nor was it your sister's fault. Nor was it your parents' fault or your friend's fault. That when you disobey God, it doesn't come from things around you. Other things don't make you sin. The second thing that we can remember, that you will be easily able to remember, you can remember this, is that when you sin, it comes from wanting to sin. And that's the things that you want. And the Bible calls that your heart. And so you don't just need to stop sinning. It's the problem that you want to sin. That's the problem. And the third thing, which is the happiest thing to remember, is that that's why Jesus came. Jesus came to rescue us, not just from the bad things we do, but from even wanting the bad things. This is why Jesus died. This is why he was raised from the dead to rescue us, not just from the things that we do, from e, but from the place where it comes from, from wanting to do that. All right, our first point is this. The things around you do not make you sin. Now, why did Jesus have to say this? Well, first of all, we have to understand a little context. Remember that Jesus, actually, when we're reading the gospel, when we're in the New Testament, in the gospels, a lot of the gospels is in the Old Testament. What do you mean by the Old Testament? That's the relationship that God had with his people before Jesus came. And before Jesus paid for their sins, before Jesus died and rose. And so even though we've got the New Testament and Jesus talking to us, we're actually kind of in the Old Testament now, aren't we? Because Jesus hadn't died for our sins. He hadn't risen from the dead. We've still got a temple there. They're offering animal sacrifices. And God had made special rules for his people. You know, every culture has different cultural things. Cultures have their languages. They have certain foods that they eat. They have celebrations. They have clothes that they wear. They look, they look distinct, right? Different cultures. And that's a wonderful thing. So God, when he made a people in the Old Testament, he, gave them a, he made a nation out of the people of Abraham and then Isaac and then Israel, right? And he calls them Israel and he gives them a culture. He gives them food that they will and will not eat. He gives them clothing that they will, clothing that they will and will not uh, wear. He gives them these things, and he gives them food, and he calls it clean and unclean food. So some of the unclean food, some of the forbidden food to eat was pork, including bacon. Shellfish was also not allowed to be eaten, and bats were also not allowed to be eaten. I'm not sure if any of you would have been sad about that, but no eating bats. But there was also, so there was food that you were not allowed to eat. You're not even, not really allowed to touch these things either. But then there was also what they would call clean and unclean clothing. So one of the things, it was, a, it was an odd rule, and, and God even recognized this. You were to be a peculiar people, that you're not allowed wearing clothing of mixed fabrics, Okay. There was also something called ritual uncleanness, ritual uncleanness. So for instance, if you touched a dead body, that made you ritually or you could say ceremonially unclean. Even if you didn't get a disease from that body, it just touching that thing meant you made you unclean. Or certain sicknesses as well would, would make you unclean. So if you were unclean, you actually couldn't go to the temple while you were unclean. It meant no temple access. Now, here's, this is the context, okay? And then Jesus says to the people, 
The things around you do not make you sin. And the parable is this, a very short parable, one of Jesus' shortest parables. Some people are like, well, it's not really a parable, but Jesus tells us it's a parable in here, so we're going to listen to it. Here's a parable, and this is a parable that the kids can remember, okay? It's a gross parable, which makes it easier to remember, I'm sure, for some of you. Here's the thing. Food isn't gross. What happens to the food after you eat it is gross. The food going into your body, that's not gross. Food going out of your body, that's gross, right? The stuff on your plate isn't bad. The stuff in the toilet is bad. This is the parable that Jesus told. (laughs) So let's explain that parable. What does it mean? The things around you do not make you sin. Food or dead bodies, actually, even in the Old Testament, didn't make you sinful. It just meant you ceremonially unclean. It made you ritually unclean. It was a parable. It was an object lesson. So, Jesus' point is this. So, simply avoiding unclean food or dead bodies or washing your hands does not make you right in God's eyes. It doesn't make you a righteous person. It doesn't make you holy. It doesn't clean all your sins away that you just, I made sure I never touched a pig. I never ate any dead pig or living pig or bats. Now, this was a living parable, a foreshadow of a greater truth. Now, the people who believed in Jesus before he came, they knew this. If you're familiar with Psalm 51, this is David's song of repentance. David had sinned. David sinned greatly. He saw another man's wife taking a bath and he said, I want her. And then he called her to the palace and he treated her as his wife and she became expecting a baby. And he tried to cover it up by killing her husband. He sinned very, very greatly. He deserved hell even and death. And when David came to his senses, when he repented of his sin, He speaks in Psalm 51 of how he needs the Lord to clean his heart. David knew that he couldn't just be right in God's eyes by not eating bats. He knew that the problem was not from outside. It wasn't the outside stuff that was making him sinful. It was the inside. Sin was coming out of him. It wasn't going into him. Now, this means that we cannot blame the things around us for our sin. We can't can't believe that avoiding unclean things is going to make us holy because the problem is not what is touching your body or going into your body. The problem is the things coming out of your body. And here we're not talking about toilet. We're talking about sinful actions coming out of your body. The problem is that they're there to begin with in order for them to go out. See, here he's talking about sinful actions and even sinful thoughts, if you read that. So it's not what is done to you that makes you sinful. But what you do shows that you are sinful. Other people, I'll repeat this over and over again, other people do not make you sin. Your sin doesn't come from other people. Your sin comes from within you. So not only does other people not make you sin, other things don't make you sin. God only made good things. When God finished creating the world, what did he say? He said, he saw it, and he saw that it was very good. God only made good things. There's nothing that makes you sin. The question is, how do we receive or use these things? That is the question. Food that tastes good is not sinful. We say things are sinfully delicious. And so some people have thought, oh, that's bad. So let's make sure we only eat food that tastes bad. Or we'll only eat food that tastes good accidentally. If it accidentally tastes good, we won't do anything to make it taste more good. No, that's not true. Food, even good-tasting food, isn't sinful. Laughter. Laughter's not sinful. The Bible doesn't speak ill of laughter. It talks about it as being wonderful. It's a good thing. But, of course, you can sin in laughter. 
rest. We're told six days you shall labor and do all your work. And the seventh day is a day of rest. This is, rest is God's idea. The Bible talks about working hard and then each evening going to bed tired and resting. The Bible talks about resting after your labor and enjoying the company of friends and family. Rest is not sinful. Rest doesn't make you sin. God made rest. He invented it. The other thing that doesn't cause sin is money. Money does not make you sin. It's not sinful. Of course, you can sin with money. Work is not sinful. People who love work aren't sinful. Well, you shouldn't really love work because then you're idolizing it. Well, you can idolize work, but it isn't sinful. Work isn't sinful. When people say you've done a good job and you enjoy that, that's not sinful. God invented that. It's a good thing. Now, of course, can you sin with that? You sure can. Alcohol is not sinful. Now, can you sin with alcohol? You sure can sin with alcohol. Sexual pleasure is not sinful. God invented it. He designed marriage. He was the one who invented how babies would be conceived. It is not sinful. Can you sin with it? You certainly can. Now, all the uh, people are asking, well, what about drugs? Well, drugs... Did God make them? Of course he did. He also made poison. So just because God made it, it doesn't mean that there's a good way to use it in a way that's not sinful. See, with these things, the Bible tells us that we are to always be sober-minded. We're always to be of self-control. We're always supposed to have clarity of thought. Why? So that we could always know and glorify and honor the Lord. So we're always in our right mind so that we'd be able to see clearly, have a good grasp of reality so that we can help other people. So that we can think true thoughts about God and we can love our neighbor as ourself. So all the things that God made are good. The problem is, as John Calvin once said, our hearts are idol factories. We're really good at taking the good stuff God made and then turning it into, with our idol factory, turning it into something that is an idol. We're so prone, after our first parent sinned, we turn, we, we, instead of worshiping the creator of things, God, we worship the creature, or we worship the created things. Rather than using all the things that God made to enjoy God, to imitate God, to love God, to love our neighbor, to take all the things that God made, the raw materials, and use them to glorify God. The Bible talks about that as dominion, ruling over creation, ruling well over creation, not destroying it, ruling well over creation, using all those things and using them to imitate God's character and enjoy God's character. Instead of ruling over creation, sin has made us be ruled by creation. Now we're controlled by things like money. We're controlled by things like food. We're controlled by things like the praise of men and women. We're controlled by sexual pleasure. We're controlled by just about anything. Our hearts are idol factories. So avoiding other sinners is not going to solve the problem. Now, of course, in the Bible... We are told it's important to choose your friends wisely. So we need to make sure we don't fly to the other side and, and leave Scripture. We are told in the Bible to choose your friends wisely. And there are some people we are not supposed to associate with unless they are willing to repent. That The Bible teaches those things. But even in doing that, it doesn't solve the problem. Okay? Because the problem is your own desires. So, let's apply this a little bit. Your conflicts with the people around you, be that your wife or your parents, your siblings, your children, your conflicts. Some people would say, well, if I just kept away from these people, or maybe if I got a new wife, or if I got a new husband, I would be better. I'd be able to obey God better. 
Because this person is really preventing me from honoring God. They make me sin. The Bible is very clear. No circumstances and the people around you, they just give opportunity to show what was already there in your heart. You cannot blame your spouse for your sin. It actually helps us to deal with conflict better when we realize that. The circumstances only give opportunity to show what was already there. They do not make you sin. Now, the second point is this. Our hearts are the cause of our sin. Our hearts are the cause of our sin. Sometimes we go halfway there. So you've sinned, you've done something bad, right? You've disobeyed God's word. You've done something that's forbidden in Scripture. Or you fail to do something that's commanded in Scripture. And we go halfway there. We think, okay, it's my, sinful, it's my sinful thoughts that are the problem. Okay, so we've gone from sinful actions. And then we back the train up a little bit. And we say, okay, it's my sinful thoughts. It's me thinking about these things. I can think sinful thoughts. That's the problem. And Jesus would agree. Yes, your sinful thoughts are sinful. But I wonder if you notice it's actually deeper than that. Notice he said that evil thoughts are not the root. Look at verse 20. Did you notice this? And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. And we think, okay, yeah, it's your evil thoughts that defile you. Listen, verse 21. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts. So the evil thoughts are the things coming out. And where are they coming from? They aren't the problem. The problem is further back. So let's look. From within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Dear friends, even your thoughts are not the root. They are just the fruit. They're sinful they are sinful, but they are not the root of your sin. And the problem is your heart. Now, if you are not a Christian, this means your true self. The heart of who you really are. This is the problem. It's your, your true identity is that you're a sin, sinner. And this True identity, this nature, is where your sinful thoughts are coming from, your sinful desires are coming from, and, and then your sinful actions. But if you are a Christian, when the Bible talks about sinful things coming out of your heart, it's not your true self. Because you have been made new with Christ. And now the Bible talking about your heart is just talking about your desires. So you're still a step further back from thoughts. There's actions thoughts, and desires. We do not love God naturally. Not since Adam and Eve sinned. And that means our actions and even our thoughts, they're not the disease, but they are the symptoms of the disease. Let's look at some of these. The ones that Jesus mentions, he lists some of these. Sexual immorality. Sexual immorality, or porneia, is the actual Greek word here. Thoughts and deeds. Thinking about doing sinful sexual actions that the Lord Jesus would consider sinful. So this includes sex before marriage. It includes, in the Bible, it includes sex before marriage. It includes prostitution. It includes homosexuality. And these thoughts and actions actually come from your heart from the desires of your heart. And we see here that it would be in your heart a lack of love for covenant. God's relationship with his people where it's based on an oath that he swears. A lack of love for the dignity of someone else, treating them as an object rather than an image bearer of God. Or the idolatry of pleasure. This is where this comes from. You're idolizing pleasure. Pleasure has become an idol in your heart. Theft. Theft is one of the things that Jesus mentions. And what is theft? It means taking what is not yours. 
And where does this come from? This comes from a desire not caring about the good of the person who has these things. When you are considering stealing something, when you're thinking stealing thoughts, where, does those, where do those stealing thoughts come from? The fact that you do not love that person who you're trying to steal from or you're thinking about stealing from. You're not thinking about how that object could be such a great thing. A possession could be a great thing for that person. And you love how it would bless your neighbor to have that thing that they already possess. You're also not, you're not loving the design for ownership. God designed owning things. Owning things is not a recent development. It's not a sinful thing that we got to get rid of. We shouldn't own things. God invented these things for us to imitate him. How do we imitate him in owning things? He owns things. What does God own? Easier to say, what does God not own? Nothing. God owns everything. And so we imitate God by owning things, by getting things in a righteous way and then owning them taking responsibility for them, making decisions about those things because we own them. And we don't love that idea. We don't love it when other people own things. Another way that we can practice theft, the Bible talks about, would be extortion. And when the Bible talks about extortion, it means not simply just threatening people, but it means taking advantage or making more money off of people because by no fault of their own, they're in a bad position. So being able to make more profit of a person because they are a widow or because they are um, an orphan or because they are sick or because somebody else robbed them, making more money off of somebody because they're in a bad position, the Bible actually calls that theft. It makes actually legal things illegal in God's eyes what about murder? Well, murder would be the sin of not loving life. We t t uh, trace it back, action, thought, desires. You don't love life. You don't desire that people would live. This would include abortion. Abortion is killing humans. And it, it will not just do not to, not to abort people or to stop thinking about aborting people. The problem is the desire. It comes from a desire in the heart where you love something more than life. Racism in the Bible is counted as murder. There is actually one race, so racism is a silly word because you cannot love your race more than another race. There are no other races. But, but judging people sinfully or being unkind to people because of their, uh, their, their cultural, ethnic background, the Bible says, is a form of murder. Hating people is a form of murder. Failing to protect life is murder. But all of these things come from the heart, a lack of a right desire. Adultery, very similar to sexual immorality, adultery. But adultery is specifically focusing on sin against your own spouse. Or trying to interfere with somebody else's marriage, desiring another, uh, another man's wife or another woman's husband. So it's faithlessness to your own spouse. So thoughts, pornography, wandering eyes, or actual activity. The Bible says divorce is a form of adultery, not being faithful and not loving faithfulness. Thoughts about leaving, not loving the design of covenant. Marriage is meant to be a living parable of the gospel, of the marriage between Christ and his bride, the church. Christ and his wife, the church. This morning we sung that we could be sons of God, and I noticed that there's women singing this, we can be sons of God. Yes, we all have the privilege of being the firstborn son. We get, that's the position we get. But all of us also get to enjoy, men and women get to enjoy being part of the bride of Christ. It works both ways. We can learn from these things. And every marriage is an opportunity to celebrate and enjoy the covenant marriage between Christ and the church. And we can love the opportunity to demonstrate that. But when we are not loving faithfulness to our own wives and husbands... What we are doing is we're not loving 
that God commanded us to imitate him in marriage with his faithfulness to his own wife. Coveting. Coveting would be resenting God. Look, I've done all the things that God says in order to get things. I've worked hard. And yet I'm still not satisfied and I can't enjoy God with what he gave me. I could only enjoy God. I could only praise him if he gave me more than what I was able to get righteously. And that's where coveting comes in. Coveting would also be unable to rejoice with those who are rejoicing. Sometimes the hardest day in a young child's life is their sibling's birthday. Because the day before, none of us got a present. And I was happy with getting nothing. But I'm actually less happy because my sibling got something today. That's coveting. The Bible says that true love is being able to rejoice with those who rejoice, even if that didn't happen to you. So maybe you would love to have a child, love to conceive, but have been unable. What happens when someone else conceives and bears a child? Are you able to rejoice? See, that, it's not just, I've got to fight those bad thoughts of resenting that person. No, we've got to go further. Because the problem is in your desires. The problem is in all of our desires. He talks about wickedness, or another word for that is malice. And with wickedness, it's actions that are not themselves sinful automatically, not without context. But these are things that are done with an evil intent. I'll give you an example. So the Bible doesn't say you can't drive down a certain street on the road. There's no say you can't drive down this intersection. But imagine that intersection, that street, is not on your pathway to work. It's not the quickest way to work. It's a little slower. But the reason you drive down there is you know that there is some pornographic material on a building and you want to drive past it. Now that is wicked to intentionally drive down that street. Whereas you're not forbidden from driving down that street, but your desire makes it sinful. So that's just an obvious example, but it's, we see this more often in how we act and how we do not think about how our actions will affect the people around us. Well, nothing says I can't do that. There's no verse in the Bible that I can't do this. Yeah, but you know that if you do this, it will have really terrible consequences on the people around you, and you know that. Malice, intentionally doing something that's actually not forbidden in order to harm someone else. Deceit, the Bible talks about deceit and it's more than lying. Did you notice that? He doesn't just say lying, he says deceit. And deceit would be intentionally misleading people, even if you don't lie. How does this come out of the heart? It's a heart that doesn't love truth. It's also a heart that doesn't love people. Because if you love people, you'd want them to have all the right information from which to make a good decision for. You want all the information you can get to make good decisions. And when you're lying to people, maybe about yourself, it's because you want them to make a decision about you based on false information. It's not loving to have somebody make a decision without good information. And then the, he says sensuality. Sensuality might be the flip side of lust. Lust is when you are overcome by, uh, by uh, it specifically would be, be sexual desire. But sensuality is kind of like desiring to produce that in other people. So acting in a way uh, so, so it would be what is lovely in private. So sexual activity. What is lovely in private, to have that made public. Things that are good and right privately, to say, no, we're going to have these things done publicly. Taking steps to have other people notice you sexually. Or, so it's doing things that are good in private and wanting them in public. Or, it's things that are even shameful in private. And then you want them to be treated as unshameful. So rather than sinning in private, you're like, we're just going to make a parade out of this. So, of course, things like pornography, sexuality and advertising. 
where advertisers want to create a sexual desire in the people who are watching in order to profit off of this. This is this idea of sensuality. Pride parades, drag shows, those sorts of things. The idea of shock, doing things publicly for the sense of shock. And then, of course, he talks about envy. And the word envy is talking about greed. It's actually even stinginess. Having no desire to share with other people who are in need. Again, it's not just envious thoughts that are a problem. It's the fact that you don't have a desire. Or slander. Slander, of course, is not just lying. Slander includes saying true things about other people that you have no business saying in public. The Bible gives us a pathway in Matthew 18. If we really wanted to deal with other people's sin in a way that was because of love for them, he gives us a pathway to do that in Matthew 18. And slander is where we say, I actually really enjoy saying bad things about somebody that are true about other people. That's slander. And the Bible forbids it. See, when Jesus, when the Bible exposes our sin, God doesn't just do it just because he loves uncovering our sin. Well, it's true. Why does the Lord Jesus in the Bible expose our sin? Why does he send his spirit to convict us of sin? Why? So that we might be restored to him. Not just because he loves telling the truth, but because he loves restoring sinners. And then pride and foolishness sum it up here. Pride would be having an inflated sense of importance. Humility assumes that you have wisdom that you need from outside of you. And that you will need these things. And pride, if you, it's connected with unrepentance, is an arrogant heart that says, I'll take God. I know he says not to do this, but I could take whatever he's giving me. And then pride becomes even more ridiculous. And then foolishness. If we look at the book of Proverbs, it is a lack of fear of God. A lack of desire for godliness. It's, it's living life without reference to God. Living life without reference to the consequences. It's not necessarily like, I really want to disobey God. You don't even think of it. You don't even consider it. Foolishness would be like driving a car, hands off the wheel, eyes closed. And like, well, I wasn't trying to smash into anything. This is kind of what foolishness is. Without a concern for the consequences. And without concern for your true purpose, which is to love glorify and enjoy God. And so, merely changing your ways cannot solve this problem. Many of you have felt this. You sin and you're frustrated. Why can I not stop this? Well, maybe if I like build different things into my life to make it impossible to commit that sin, guess what happens? That sin follows you to wherever you've run because the problem is within your own heart. Later in Mark 9, Jesus is going to say, if your hand causes you to sin, you're going to have to cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, what should you do in the Bible? Pluck it out. What's the problem here? What's causing you to sin? What do you need? Cut it out? We need a new heart. And this is where the gospel of Jesus sings beautifully. Our third point is this. The gospel of Christ is the cure for the disease and not only the symptoms. In that context, Jesus had just healed people on the shore of Gennesaret. Remember that? How did he heal these people? By being touched. They touched him. What does that mean? He's ritually unclean. Their uncleanness has traveled to him. He is taking on their uncleanness. And you see what a lovely, wise God we have. That for a thousand years, more than a thousand years, he had created this idea of uncleanness, this word picture that if you are touched by something sinful, it makes you unclean. Not necessarily sinful, but ritually unclean. You can't enter the temple. So that when the Messiah comes, he would heal people by being touched by them so they would see this is how he saves us. 
by our uncleanness going to him. Not simply him saying, I don't care about sin anymore. I've changed my mind. No, but by taking on our sin, by taking on our guilt, by taking on our filth onto himself, it was a very costly touch to Jesus. He bore our iniquity. He bore our uncleanness. 2 Corinthians 5 says he became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. So he was punished on the cross with our sin. He stood in the presence of God where bearing all of the sin that you've ever committed and was punished for us. But Brother George read for us another sweet part of the gospel that we often overlook in Ezekiel 36, where he says, I will give you a new heart. I will take your old heart, your heart of stone, I'm going to take it out of you, and I'm going to give you a new heart, a heart of flesh. And then he says something even, even more profound. He says, I'm going to put my spirit, the Holy Spirit, I'm going to put inside of you. And when Jesus came, before Jesus came, the prophet who announced his coming was John the Baptist, his cousin. Remember John the Baptist? And God told John, in John 1, we see this in John 2, God told John, you're going to know the person who's going to give the Holy Spirit out. You're going to know him because you're going to see the Holy Spirit rest on him. The Holy Spirit's going to land on him visually like a dove and going to rest on him. And so when John saw at Jesus' baptism, the Holy Spirit descend on Jesus and rest on him, he knew this is the man we get a new heart from. Now, it's not like that only happened in the New Testament after Jesus came. People had a new heart in the Old Testament. This is just saying, he's the one who gave it to you. In the Old Testament, the people were in the wilderness and they had no water and they cried out to God for water and God told Moses to strike the rock and out of the rock would flow water that would feed all of the people of Israel. And Paul tells us that the rock was Christ. That when Christ is the rock and he is struck, then out of him would come Holy Spirit. And he was with the people in the wilderness. He was with the people in the Old Testament who trusted in the gospel. And so if you have come to Christ for salvation, for forgiveness, if you believe he's the one who died, who was struck for your forgiveness and was raised from the dead, and if you believe this reconciles to God, what you also need to realize is that he gave you a new heart. You wouldn't believe the gospel if you didn't have a new heart. And if you have a new heart, you have the Holy Spirit of God in you. And you are a new creation. And so if you are not a Christian, quit trying to deal with just the symptoms of the disease. You need to be forgiven, but you also need a new heart. And Jesus Christ is the only one who can give you that. Who can free you from the slavery to turning everything into idols. We're so creative, we can turn everything into idols. You have been controlled by silly little things. You have done things that you regret in order to gain almost nothing. It controlled you. And dear friend, you can run to Christ and he promises that he will forgive your sin and he will put his own heart within you. A dear Christian, you'll say, well, what about me? I have a new heart. Why is this still happening? And the Bible talks about this as your desires. And though you have a new heart, you will still wrestle with desires that are contrary to God's word. And we are called to live a life of repentance. And repentance as a Christian is the same, in a way, as repentance from becoming a Christian, where it is paired with faith. Dear Christian, if you find yourself in sin, whether it is actions or thoughts, you know the issue is your desires. And these are things that God promises to deal with. He promises to help you with these things. Do not be satisfied with dealing with sin casually. Not even seriously, not, 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 to deal with it seriously. Don't just do, deal with it with a surface. Years ago, 
Lana and I bought a house in Alberta, and we really love this house, and we're going to do some renos, we're going to paint it, and so I filled some holes with mud, and I waited for the mud to dry before I was going to sand it and then paint it, and, and then I was sanding one of the holes, and my hand fell right, right through the wall, and it was wet and mushy, and the studs were rotten, and I panicked, and I thought, the worst is going to happen. What happened is the previous homeowner had obviously done the same thing and then put a little bit of mud over it. So I called my friend who, was, uh, uh, who did construction and we ripped that wall open until we found dry, clean studs. And we replaced them. But that wasn't even the issue. That wasn't even itself not enough. We had to figure out, where's the water coming from? Because this will just happen again. And so we found that it was bad flashing on the roof by the chimney. Dear Christian, this is what the way we need to deal with sin. Don't just try to cut off the actions or even just cut, cut off those thoughts. I have to stop thinking those thoughts. Go to the root. And how do we do this? We fan into flame those good desires, the desires that, that belong to the new man, to the new woman. The Lord Jesus says, you have been made new. All who are in Christ are a new creation. And this is what he means, that we feed those new desires. We feed that new life who is truly, the, tr the life that is truly ours. We are now sons and daughters of God. We now belong to the bride of Christ. And we have to trust his promises. Trust his gospel promises. Do you trust in Christ? Yes. Then you have a new heart, and these desires don't belong with that new heart. These desires, even if you fulfill them, will not satisfy you. You will not be fulfilled with these things. You are a new creation. You have a new heart. Paul loves to take people back to their baptism. Not because it was the time they got saved, but to say, look, what was God promising in your baptism? He was saying that when Jesus died, you died. And when he rose, you rose. You are not the old man. Quit thinking like the old man. You have a new heart, a heart that loves God, that is not enslaved to sin, that does not resent God, but a heart that is loved by God and therefore loves him. Trust his gospel promises. And he says in the gospel it promises, no temptation has befallen me that is, that is common to men. And every single temptation is one that a person with a new heart can resist. It's not that they will resist it, but can. And feast on Christ. Starve the old man and feed on the new, feed, feed on Christ. Feed that new man, that new woman. You have a duty to delight in Christ, to enjoy him, to be satisfied in him, to starve out the old, the old man. Now, I have been accused of idolatry with my lawn. I'm not saying it looks great. However, there are some things that you need to do to fight the weeds. It will not do to just keep cutting them short. The best way to keep weeds out is by having a nice long lawn to shade out those weeds so they don't get any sunlight. You get to starve them. Have a nice thick lawn. Fertilize it so it's nice and thick and the weeds don't stand a chance. And dear Christian, this is why the Lord Jesus tells us, gather with your church. Feast on Christ. Throw all the fertilizer on that new life, that new heart, so the old one withers and dies rather than always having to cut off those weeds and fight against them. A starved lawn is going to be pretty hard to keep the weeds off. Feast on the Lord Jesus. Trust his promises. Take advantage of his gifts. He says you need your brothers and sisters in Christ. Tell them you're struggling. Tell them you just need them to preach the gospel to you. Tell them your situation and say, can you tell me how the gospel applies to this? Because I'm pretty blind right now. I can't figure it out. We'll end with these things. Do not be confident of your holiness based on your separation of bad things. I only listen to Christian things. I only do Christian things. I only visit Christian businesses. <laughs> and do not be settled with sin, Christian. Because if you ever settle with this, this, is, this may be a sign that you actually do not belong to Christ. But I want to say a word to the troubled Christian. 
the one who feels terrorized by their sinful desires and thoughts. You need to know that Christ is a good Savior. He's good at saving people. He fails never. He's also a sympathetic Savior. He knows what it is to be a human. He was here in weak human flesh. And so he's not astonished that you struggle with sinful desires. He knows that you do. And he is there to help you in them. Not help you to be settled with it like, ah, nobody's perfect. But he is there with you to help you fight against sin. And he gives you his own spirit. Remember the cost at which it cost him to give you his spirit. He is a sufficient savior. Not only for actions or words or thoughts, but even for desires. So run to Christ for healing of your heart. Not just the symptoms, but the root. Be, you, be wise. Use wisdom. Feast on those things biblically that the Bible says will feed that new man. And be wise to avoid things that the Bible says is going to feed the old man. Never have confidence in your own actions. Never have confidence in your own thoughts. My, my thoughts are holy thoughts. And never have confidence in your own heart. Dear friend, that is the worst sin of all. Our confidence is not that we now have perfect hearts, but that there was a man with a perfect heart, and he stood in our place. A man who had not only any sinful, he didn't have any sinful actions, no sinful words, didn't even have sinful thoughts, but more than that, dear friends, he never had even sinful desires. You are justified because he had a pure heart, not because you do. But let us remember he also gives us that gift of a new heart that one day will be perfectly pure. When you die and see Christ face to face, you will be made perfectly like him. And when he returns to judge the living and the dead, your hearts will be as pure as his. And those who long for that day are people who purify their hearts even now as they long for it. Church, let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that Christ is a good Savior. And we thank you that he does not frustrate us by just dealing with, telling us to deal with the symptoms, but Lord, he has come to be the cure. Lord, we thank you that you know, knowing our sinful heart, you knew that the problem was not just that we do sinful things, but we have a pure heart. No, Lord, you knew that the problem was worse than that, that we have sinful hearts prone to wander. Lord, thank you that it is to enemies that you sent your Savior, the Savior, the Lord Jesus. So Lord, I pray that you would continually tune our hearts to sing your praise, tune not just our actions and thoughts, but our hearts, because we are prone to wander and we are grateful that the good shepherd gathers wandering sheep. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.